Welcome to Rage Worth Watching, where we're working our way through the history of films that rage against the machine. Today, we're discussing the 1999 film Office Space. I'm your host, and if you move my podcast mic one more time, my co-host is Guy, who rarely presents enough flash to satisfy management. Rarely, in this case, means never. <laughs> Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So... This series is really kind of knocking out these films that uh, I was the last person on Earth to see. So previously, of course, it was Fight Club and now Office Space. And I think probably these two films are the most often referenced films that I had never seen <laughs> before we did this. <laughs> Could be. They've both been pretty popular. So what's your experience or your background with this one? I saw it many, many years ago, probably not long after it was made, and I don't know... I don't remember at this point what made me want to see it or, you know, if, if there was, it was, if it was just something that looked amusing. I, I think maybe by then I knew that it was by the guy who did Beavis and Butthead and <laughs> all that. So, uh, so I'm, or maybe King of the Hill. I don't remember if that was out at the time, uh, yet, but I ended up seeing it and I really liked it and I've seen it several times since then. Well, I am a huge fan of Mike Judge. Now, I, of course, knew about Beavis and Butthead, but I never really watched them, and I probably, you know, thought it was a little uh, you know, below me or something. But yeah. uh, <laughs> I loved King of the Hill. Oh, yeah. And he's one of those rare people who has a career with so many different aspects, right? I mean, he gets famous for Beavis and Butthead. Then King of the Hill is amazing. This movie is a huge classic. Mm -hmm. uh, Idiocracy is a huge classic. And these are all different things. I mean, there just aren't many oh, people... Yeah who've done things in multiple mediums and especially being able to go between animation and live action. You know, we saw like, for example, Andrew Stanton, who's an amazing director who did Finding Nemo, you know, he did a live action film of a, that I would have really wanted to be good to <laughs> the, uh, John Carter of Mars. Oh, I heard about that. That was a book series by Burroughs who did Tarzan. Right. I read those when I was a kid and I was a big fan. I would have loved for the movie to be good. Uh, it was not, in my opinion. But Stanton just didn't know how to do live action. You know, he was an animation guy, and he just didn't know how to do live action. Hmm. And, you know, Mike Judge is sort of rare for being able to do this. The other thing is, and I did not know this until watching the background materials for this, this film is based on one of the very first things Judge ever tried to do. So he decided to learn animation, and he was literally just, I think, taking a piece of paper or, you know, many pieces of paper and drawing on them. Mm -hmm. And he did this uh, character called Milton. And if you go back and watch this thing, and it's probably, I don't know, one minute or something, you know, it's really, yeah, really short. Under two minutes, I think. Yeah. It is exactly the Milton character we see in this movie. Mm -hmm. The dialogue is exactly the same. And the plot is exactly the same. I mean, watching this <laughs> <laughs> one minute animated film, you basically could know what is going to happen in this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I mean, some of the dialogue, uh, it's, it's in the cartoon, it's, it's Milton and Lumberg. Um, he's just called Bill, I think, in the cartoon, but, uh, but he talks just like Lumberg. Milton's a <laughs> yeah. little bit different. I mean, uh, you know, Milton has his own actor in this movie. Well, so does Lumberg. Um, yeah. And they both bring their own talents to the roles, uh, but still, uh, they're very close in the cartoon to what we. Yeah, it's amazingly like, oh, this is going to become this movie. It's just pretty amazing. 
Now, one thing I'll say, and, and Judge talks about this uh, in the background materials, he made a very smart decision, which is he had this character he wanted, Milton, but he decided not to make him the main character of the movie because he's a little mm-hmm. too quirky and you just can't hang a 90-minute movie on him, right? Yeah. This is something that Saturday Night Live has screwed up a lot, right? Because they'll be like, oh, we have this quirky character. We're now going to make a movie where you spend, a, you know, 90 minutes to two hours watching them be wacky. And it's like, no, that's totally wrong, you know? Yeah. They should be the side character. <laughs> yeah. Now, sometimes sometimes it works. Now, a lot of people would disagree with me on this, but uh, the ladies' man, uh, I thought, was a good, strong example. Well, goofy, but but fun of, uh, uh, you know, an SNL character who can carry a movie. Uh, but it, it's not exactly Shakespeare. Unfortunately or fortunately, it's been so many decades since I've been watching SNL, I don't even know that reference. I don't know that movie. So. <laughs> I have a theory of the movie later that will kind of um, be the opposite of what I just said. So we will ah, see. <laughs> get okay. Well, Milton does end up being important to the movie. Well, exactly. Yeah. Why don't we go ahead and dive in? All right. For my part of the uh, hosting here, I'm going to leave out most, if not all, of the jokes in the movie, uh, which uh, is a shame because the movie is just one joke after another. But, you know, you don't need me sitting here repeating jokes into the microphone. <laughs> so well, if you if you think it might appeal to you, check out the movie. It's an, I, it's I've watched it several times, as I said. So it's um I guess you already know where my verdict is gonna fall on this one as far as <laughs> worth watching goes. So the movie starts up with some uh catchy music. I think it might be a mumbo, but it's start and stop traffic. <laughs> Which, by the way, is a theme in our Rage of uh, the, the Machine movies, right? So yeah, yeah. yeah. Falling down, he starts out in traffic. And... Yeah. <laughs> so we see first, uh, the first driver we see is Peter, who is our main character. And he sees an old man with a walker going by on the sidewalk as he's in this <laughs> traffic. He tries changing lanes and, of course, is... Uh, as soon as he gets into one lane, the other one starts moving, you know, and, and eventually he sees that the old man has gone on way down the street. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then we go to Michael, who uh, works with Peter. He's in a separate car of his own, and he's listening to some gangster rap. And uh, uh, then then a guy comes by, uh, I don't know, selling flowers or something. He's walking on the the berm or whatever it's called, you know, between the two oncoming traffic and other traffic. <laughs> and he's <laughs> selling something or another. And uh, he's a black guy. And as soon as Michael sees him, he surreptitiously locks his door and turns down the rap music. So it's, uh, you know, he, he is not exactly a gangster himself. He just seems to enjoy the right. music. Although one difference between him and Peter I notice here is that, you know, Peter is very frustrated with the traffic. For Michael, it's just a chance to, you know, yell out rap lyrics, right? Like he's having fun. Yeah, you know, yeah. Tra- he's, you know. he's actually keeping himself entertained with the music. And then we go to Samir, who uh, all works with the two of them. And Samir is just furious. He's pounding <laughs> the steering rail and cursing. 
And then we see Milton, uh, who we've already <laughs> talked about a little bit, and he's waiting for the bus. And Milton is uh, played by Stephen Root, who is a delightful actor. He's the the judge in Idiocracy. Um, he also played a judge in Justified, the TV show. He's he's been in a whole lot of things. He put, oh, I think he, I first got to know him in news radio. He was the boss in news radio. Okay, I never which watched is a great it. series. No, wasn't was. that Phil Hartman was in that? Wasn't he? It was. Uh, he died oh, okay. while he was in that oh, series. Yeah, uh, yeah but the, Stephen Root is great in that series, and that's where I got to know him. And he was in King of the Hill. He's one of the the main characters in King of the Hill. And oh, I have to okay. say, when I first was watching this movie, because I didn't know who was in it, and I'm looking at this guy, and I'm like. God, this this seems like Stephen Root, but it can't be him because it's just it's so different from anything he's done that I've seen, and <laughs> and physically he's not quite the same, right? I mean, somehow they got him to be sort of fatter and kind of blown out in a way that you know, I mean, he's not a thin guy, but you know, this was different. So I really didn't think it was him, and then when I looked at the credits, I was like, oh my God, it was Stephen. <laughs> <laughs> He said in the background materials that some people have said he was going um, over the top with the character, but he considers it his most subtle performance ever. And and I think I agree <laughs> with him. I think that, you know, yeah, he's so quiet. And yet, especially when we get to the end and everything and see what happens, we realize this is this is a guy with a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, it, I remember thinking before I knew who Stephen Root was. Oh, and I, I wanted to mention he's also... The title character in The Man in the High Castle, he is the man hmm. in the high. So he's a real versatile guy. And I remember thinking, before I knew who he was, thinking that this guy who played Milton, this poor sad sack, I, I, I'd be afraid to see what he was actually like in person because <laughs> you couldn't possibly act that much of a nebbish, you know. And uh, But it is, it's acting. <laughs> he's actually a pretty cool guy. Right. And I mean, what he does is, I mean, we haven't quite said for for anyone who hasn't seen it. I mean, he mumbles. He never more than mumbles. And you have to listen to him carefully. Milton. Hi. Uh, could you turn that down just a little bit? But I, I was told that I could listen to the radio at a reasonable volume from 9 to 11. Yeah, no, no, I, I know you're allowed to. I, uh, I was just thinking maybe like a, you know, personal favor. Well, I... I, I, I told Bill that if, if Sandra's going to listen to her headphones while she's, while she's falling, then I should be able to listen to the radio while I'm collating. Uh -huh. So I don't see why okay. I should have to turn down the radio because yeah, all right. okay. I enjoy listening at a reasonable volume. Thanks. From 9 to 11. No. But <laughs> when you listen to his mumbling, he'll throw in these really disturbing little ends of sentences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. He, he, uh, he throws in a lot of uh, plans for the future. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he's he's sitting on a bench waiting for a bus, and he's got a little lunch pail and thermos, which uh, actually I have that very same thermos. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he uh, he's muttering to himself about how he was told that uh, if he showed up late again, he'd be dismissed. And then we see the Inatech parking lot. Inatech is where all these guys work. Uh, and we see this nice blue Porsche uh, pull into a reserved vice president's slot at Inatech. And that's Bill Lumberg. He's, uh, he's the boss here. And just to make it clear what kind of guy he is, the license plate is my Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, he's pretty. And he, I, I think when he gets out of the car, he actually takes a moment to kind of uh, admire it. Um, <laughs> but then I do that to my Fiat too, so I can't blame him. <laughs> so these are our most of our main characters. We'll be getting a few more, but these are these are the main people who will work at Inatech. And the whole, you know, from the title Office Space, you might guess that it's an office-focused uh, movie. And we see Peter's day at work begins, uh, and he gets to start at 9, which is nice. Uh, I think every job I've had always started at 8, so I don't know where hmm. people are getting these 9 to 5 jobs from. He starts at 9, and uh, he's got Nina sitting near him, and she repeats the same thing over and over again, and she's always picking up the phone, saying, I think it's corporate accounts payable. Nina's speaking, just a moment, except she hmm. says it in a very sing-songy voice. Yes, and um, she says it like dozens of times, right? Yeah, <laughs> She's just... as, as soon as she finishes her spiel, she puts the collar on hold and picks up the next one. So it's just repeating over and over again, and it would drive you nuts if you had to work next to it. And the boss, Lumberg, he comes up to Peter, and he asks him about the TPS reports. <laughs> becomes a theme. There are a lot of setups in these opening minutes of the uh, of the movie. There are a lot of things that end up getting called back, some just as jokes and some as actual important plot points. But uh, there was a new policy instituted that you have to put a cover sheet on your TPS reports. And Lumberg uh, asks, did you get the memo? <laughs> and uh, uh, Peter says, yeah, yeah, I just forgot. And uh, <laughs> so then Milton is in the cubicle uh, next to Peter, and he's playing his radio. Peter asks him to turn it down, but Milton protests that he's playing at a reasonable volume between the hours of 9 and 11 a.m. Yes, there was a rule that they're allowed to do this, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah so so Peter just was going to have to suck that up, too. Then another guy comes in. He's another boss. We find out later that, that Peter has eight different bosses. <laughs> and um, this guy in the credits, he's called Dom. I don't think the name is actually said in the movie yeah. that I noticed. But he he's asking the exact same questions that uh, Lumberg had about the TPS reports. And Dom isn't listening to him at all. Peter explains that he... He forgot. It's not a problem. You know, he's going to take care of it. And Dom just goes on and uh, clearly did not hear anything that he just said. And then the phone rings, and it's another boss asking about the cover sheet on the TPS report. So this is just an awful, awful way to start the morning, and it's probably <laughs> the way most mornings start at this place. We see the printer acting up for Samir. It's got a paper jam, and finally he ends up yanking the paper out of it. A good part of the paper remains torn and stuck inside the printer. And this, is again, is a setup for what more stuff that printer gets up to later on. Michael complains to Samir about having his name, which is Michael Bolton, uh, because, mm -hmm. of course, there's the famous singer uh, of the same name, and... He's tired of getting questions about that and being compared to him, so on and so forth. So Peter, by this time, is already frustrated. It's still, <laughs> They've been uh, here like 10 minutes. You know? Yeah. Uh, and he wants to go get coffee at Tchotchkes, which is, you know, the local TGIF, Applebee's type, you know, chain yeah. restaurant. So apparently they, they have a fair amount of leeway. I guess they're probably salaried 
and we will see that Peter often has to come in on the weekends. So I guess, uh, I guess if he wants to go get some coffee, more power to him. <laughs> so he goes over there with, uh, with Michael and Samir. Lumberg, Peter thinks, is going to want him to come in on Saturday. Happens often. And uh, this, too, is a setup for things that happen later. And Michael complains about how they're, all the programmers are treated there, and he, he makes this idle threat about how if they don't treat him better, he could program a virus that would really damage the place. That also is a setup. <laughs> but also, it's kind of obvious that uh, he makes this complaint all the time or this threat all the time, right, and doesn't uh, do anything about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the other guys are just, you know, they don't say like, oh, really? What would the virus do? Or, you know, they just, <laughs> it's just old hat to them. And Peter, there's a waitress named Joanna here, and that's, I believe it's Jennifer Aniston. Yep. He wants to ask her out, but first he's just a customer, and that's just not done. And also he's dating a woman named Anne. And mentioning Anne reminds him that he can't play poker with these guys Friday because he's going to see an occupational <laughs> hypnotherapist with Anne. This also is a setup for future events. <laughs> and he says, you know, sometimes I think she's cheating on me. And this also <laughs> is a setup for a few more jokes later on. One of the other guys, uh, I think it's Michael, he says, I know what you mean. Peter says, what's that supposed to mean? Yeah. So, yeah, we have this ongoing joke where everyone around him, as soon as he says he thinks she's cheating, they're like, oh, yeah. And then he's like, wait, why do you think? <laughs> <laughs> so they head back to the office, and while they're walking across these lawns that connect the restaurant to the office park, uh, they meet a guy they work with named Tom. He's an older guy with a mustache, and he's, uh, he's agitated. The company is bringing in consultants. And the way he says it, that's just a, a big red flag to him. And he explains, they call them efficiency experts, but you're really interviewing for your own job. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that this too is a setup for future mm -hmm. events. <laughs> and uh, he, he talks about the guy who invented the pet rock. Which was a, he says, a million odd, million dollar idea for him. He made a million Do you remember dollars. that, by the way, when we were kids? Oh, I remember I've, that was a big I've, deal. I've got one about three paces away here. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think we talked about it before, yeah, because I was young enough that I took it seriously. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is a certain, a certain romance about having an adorable little rock to call your own. <laughs> so, uh. Anyway, Tom is talking about this guy who had his million-dollar idea, and he says that he himself had an idea like that once, and he reveals it. The idea was the jump to conclusions, Matt. It's a mat <laughs> that has different conclusions written on it, and you can jump to them. Uh, and the other guys think this is just a terrible, absolutely awful idea, and they're not shy about expressing it either, which discourages Tom. I think that they're being open-minded enough you remember one of the popular things when we were kids was the uh, twister thing what was that called was it just twister or whatever where you oh, have this game where you have the colored circles on it yeah you oh, have this cool. map with all yeah. these different hand positions and things and people would have to like contort themselves around the other people on the mat to get to where it was basically a 
sex game because <laughs> you're basically, uh, 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 yeah. you know, having to be in uncomfortable or comfortable, depending on the situation, positions with other people in order to. Oh, to yeah. Do it. yeah. Yeah. You have to, you know, put your right foot on red and your left hand on blue and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and yeah, th this is just, I mean, Tom's point, I think, is, is very valid. I mean, there's so many, so many ads and, you know, things that have just taken off on it. Rubik's cube, you know, the, or, mm -hmm. uh, have you seen the Hudsucker proxy? Mm -hmm. You remember, uh, you know, for kids, the, the hula hoop. Right. Uh, right. Just, yeah. So I think Tom, uh, was on the right track there. You know, he, <laughs> he had a dream he, and that, and that too is a setup for stuff that comes later. So the, the programmers are talking to them amongst themselves in the office. They're wondering, what would you do if you had a million dollars? But Kaiden's counselor had told one of them a long time ago that what you would do if you had a million dollars would is, is your ideal career. Then uh, Samir says something about he'd uh, spend part of the money on one thing and then he'd invest the rest. So, uh, you know, and it never, nobody picks up on the idea that maybe he should be an investor. <laughs> but uh, mm -hmm. that's, you can kind of infer that. And then the printer uh, gives Michael a problem when he goes to use it. It has a message called PC load letter. And I believe that just means load letter size paper, eight and a half by 11 paper. Mm -hmm. But it's not a very helpful message if you don't already know what it means. <laughs> so mm -hmm. he's upset with it. Again, these printer problems are foreshadowing of future events. Back at his apartment, Peter has a thin wall separating him from his neighbor, Lawrence, who is just kind of a, kind of a down to earth, sort of rednecky type guy. Uh, but he seems like he'd be a good person to live next to agreeable guy. <laughs> I think so. Maybe you would have different opinions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, he seems like a good guy. But the joke here is he can hear everything that's happening. So, you, yeah, so yeah, yeah. he knows everything that's happening in Peter's life. You know, he can probably hear him having sex or whatever. So, <laughs> yeah, it's a very intimate relationship. Let's <laughs> Yeah. So Lawrence yells through the wall to turn on Channel 9 because the breast exam is out. <laughs> There's a video of a woman getting a breast exam and you get to see her bare breasts. So why not? So he yeah. comes over and talks to Peter. And, uh, he too thinks Anne is cheating. And when he, when he says that he, he goes into like this little reverie, like he's just thinking about the things she might do. <laughs> it's a, that's a cute little scene. Yeah. And then he apologizes. Like I was just talking out of my ass. <laughs> uh, and he mentions, uh, he's doing the drywall of the new McDonald's and the way he says it, he seems very proud of it. Like, uh, yeah, I'm uh, putting in the drywall at New McDonald's there. <laughs> just uh, that should have been honest work. You should be proud of it. Yeah. So Peter was planning to fish with him on Saturday, and he thinks he might not be able to because uh, Lumberg is probably going to call him in. Lawrence gives him a strategy to get out of that. And again, this is something that Peter will end up trying a little later on. They discussed the, what would you do if you had a million dollars question? And Peter says he would just do nothing. Hmm. Uh, he'd sit around on his ass all day and do nothing. So an insight into Peter's personality there. Hmm. And, uh, I have to say, I'd, I'd, I wouldn't do nothing. I'd, you know, read and play video games and stuff, but, uh, that's essentially nothing. 
nothing productive. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, back at Anatech, Lumberg is everyone gathered in the center of the office, and he's addressing everybody. They've hung up a big banner that says, is this good for the company? And that's supposed to be the uh, the watchword, you know, the thing you mm-hmm. ask yourself before you do anything. Is this good for the company? Now, here's the funny thing. You know, I think this is intended to be a joke and a silly thing in here, right? But honestly, the reason I had a successful career is because that's the approach I took, right? I mean, at mm-hmm. every point, I'm like, what can I do to move forward the goals of my employer? Right. And it turns out that taking that approach can lead you to success. So all no, I'm saying yeah. is, you know, it's not a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, it, it's, a, it's a fair question. It's just uh, it's something you don't necessarily need to have hanging on a banner over your head. <laughs> so he introduces the first of the two consultants. Uh, this consultant is Bob, Bob Slidell, I think his name is. He's a Sort of a tall, thin guy, neatly trimmed mustache and suspenders. Uh, I don't know, kind of accountant-like looking. I mean, just stereotypically speaking. Lumberg doesn't explain what exactly he's going to be doing. He's just going to be helping us out. You know, you're. Typical. I want to say this is John McGinley, and I first noticed him much later in this movie in the series Scrubs. Hmm. He is an amazing actor, and he basically is an actor who just always does his thing. <laughs> it's pretty much exactly the same, at least in everything I've seen. Hmm. But he he is amazing in this, um, you know, because oh, yeah. he's so good at being kind of slimy. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Then we see Milton after after Lumberg's little little pep talk. Uh, we see Milton on the phone in his cubicle. He's telling someone about his red swing line stapler. He's he's very fond of it. And there's a fun fact about this: swing line made these top fifty staplers that are little tiny things about as long as your index finger or less. And I've had one since I was just a wee toddler. But they never made a full-size red stapler like uh, like Melton's. They actually painted it, I believe, for yeah you know, to make the movie. Uh, but they do make them now, though. I, I actually have one in my desk at work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in the background materials, my judge says that after the movie, people kept calling up swing lines saying, how do I get one of these red staplers? <laughs> and they're like, well, we don't make them. So they started making them. And uh, as of the time of the documentary... He said it was their best-selling staplers. <laughs> so, a little uh, weird outcome of the movie. Yeah. So it turns out that all this talking about his stapler that Milton is doing, he's talking with Peter in the <laughs> next cubicle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and Peter's really not interested. You know, yeah, he's yeah. doing all his work. He just wants to get off the phone. <laughs> <laughs> So Lumberg stops by Peter's desk, and he wants him to come in Saturday and Sunday. Uh, he says, we lost some people this week and need to play catch-up. And, of course, by the lost of some people, uh, he's talking about the people they're about to lose from right. the consultants. <laughs> right. And the other part of this was or his, his uh, not quite roommate, but you know, close to roommate, had said, oh, you can, you know, escape this by leaving early on Friday because, you know, he'll ask at the end of the day or whatever. And so he actually looks at his watch and 
and realizes it's a little too late and sees Lumberg coming and then tries to escape and then yeah, you know, he thinks some he's escaped. Mission Impossible sneaking around. Right, and he thinks he's escaped, but of course Lumberg is right there. Yeah, <laughs> and it's oh, that's something I'm, I'm I wanted to mention. He, he's delayed, and Lumberg catches him because he's waiting for his computer to shut down and it's saving files and it's re-indexing and it's doing this, that, and the yeah. other thing. But the computer itself, I'm sure you noticed this, the interface looks similar mm. to a Mac interface. And then it after is, the yeah. computer is shut down, it goes to a C prompt, which is. <laughs> yes. I, yes, I did notice that, of course, because uh, I worked at Apple for a long time. <laughs> uh, so I did think that was amusing. <laughs> but, uh, because the C prompt, for anyone who doesn't know these days, is the Windows uh, DOS prompt. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, th this is one of those things that makes no sense in the actual world. So another thing that Mike Judge said in the background materials is he wasn't sure he wanted to actually do the movie or not. But then they re uh, had Lumberg come in, or the guy, the actor who played Lumberg, unfortunately, I don't recall his it, name. I think it's Gary Cole, if I remember right. That makes sense, yeah. And he said he was so perfect that then Judge was like, yeah, I've got to do this movie if for no other purpose than to get him on screen doing this role. <laughs> yes. yeah, it is terrific. Yeah, and uh, especially there's a there's a dream sequence later on that he appears in drinking <laughs> his mug of coffee. That's uh, yeah. oh, it's funny. <laughs> so it's Friday night when Peter would otherwise be playing poker with uh, with Samir and Michael Bolt, but instead he's at the hypnotist with his girlfriend Anne. And Peter's telling the hypnotist that uh, since he started working every day of his life is worse than the last, which probably isn't the way you want to phrase it. If your girlfriend is sitting there, <laughs> with you, she might take that personally, but, uh, yeah, it's also funny. Cause the hidden is like, well, that sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he, also Peter points out, this means anytime you meet me, this is the worst day of my life. <laughs> yeah. So the hypnotist puts him into a trance. Uh, you know, he gives him your standard hip hypnotist's spiel. A little yeah, because Peter wants, he wants to relax, right? He wants to, you yeah. know, have some way to like, well, he actually asks him to make him forget that he's working so that when <laughs> he comes home at night, he thinks he's been fishing all day or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hypnotist says, I can't quite do that, but I think I can help you. So he, uh, he puts him into a trance and, uh, he starts counting backwards, you know, down to, down to one. And his instruction is you will remain in this, you know, this state of relaxation until I snap my fingers. But as the hypnotist is counting, he starts to act a little odd. At first, it looks like he might have heartburn or something. He kind of hiccups and, uh. You know, he gets these little twitches and he's sweating a little bit. And, uh, you know, it looks like he might be having some kind of problem. And when he gets down to one, he says one, and then he collapses onto the floor. But then the camera pans up to Peter, who's sitting there in his chair, not even noticing the hypnotist collapsed on the floor. He's just smiling and just looking happy as a clam <laughs> a very yeah and i think the thing here is he said this will last until i you know the, you're going to be peaceful and you're not going to care about anything and all this and it will last until i snap my fingers but he dies before <laughs> he yep. snaps his fingers right so it yep. puts peter into this other state that he never comes out of <laughs> right 
And and it will wear off eventually, uh, you know, gradually. But uh, it, it it will last a good long while, long enough to make some big changes in Peter's life. <laughs> so the next day, Peter sleeps in. We see him in his bed and the sunlight streaming through the windows. His alarm goes off. He turns it off. He gets lots of calls from Lumberg and he ignores them. When he finally does get up sometime in the afternoon, I think he has 17 calls mm-hmm. in his answering machine. Finally, he gets out of bed and calls to yell at him uh, for acting so strange at the hypnotist's office last night when the guy died right in front of him. And uh, <laughs> so Peter is in this kind of dreamy state. He doesn't look annoyed or anything. He just moves his thumb up and presses the off button on the phone. (laughs) And uh, so immediately there's another call that he lets go to the answering machine and she she leaves a breakup message, uh, which she concludes by saying, and I've been cheating on you. (laughs) Yeah, and she says it so loudly, I noticed this the second time I watched, that the answering machine vibrates up and down on the desk when (laughs) she says, I've been cheating on you. (laughs) I didn't notice that. It's a good little detail. (laughs) He doesn't go in over the weekend, and at work on Monday, his friends notice that he still isn't there, and they've heard that he didn't come in over the past weekend. It turns out that he's gone to Tchotchke's right next door, and he asks Joanna, the waitress that he's admired from afar, he asks her if she'd like to have lunch. It's clear that he's able to do this because his inhibitions have been lowered. Right, he's just hypnosis, right? About everything. Yeah, he says he's going next door to get a table. He's very low key. He says he's uh, says she can join him if she likes. And then we get to see the Bobs interviewing uh, first Tom, who is the guy who's invented the jump to conclusions (laughs) man. And then they (laughs) interview Michael Bolton, and they're. There's a lot I could say. I mean, if you if you have something you want to say about these, you can. But I think it's something well, that's... I, oh, go ahead. I'm going to say with Tom's interview, because it is a famous scene, right? At least there's a famous line in this scene, right? Because they're, they're like, so you take these reports from, you know, the engineers and take them to the customers. And he's like, well, not quite. You know, my secretary does that or whatever. <laughs> and, and then... You take these things from the customers to the engineers, and basically, ultimately, it turns out he doesn't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the famous line is Bob Slidell saying to him, so, could you say, what is it you do here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And Tom's response is, uh, is pretty amusing uh, to me because he's, the, he's a people person. Yeah. So, uh, but, but I don't want to, you know, there, like I said, there's, Tons and tons of jokes in this movie, and I, I can't yeah. do most of them justice, so I'm not even going to try. I'm just going <laughs> to tell you what the movie's about and tell you you should see it if you want to see something funny. <laughs> anyway, uh, Joanna does go over next door to meet Peter at the restaurant next door to Tchotchke's. She's wearing a button that says we're not in Kansas anymore. She's got She's got her standard suspenders that come with the come with the job yeah very kind of tgi fridays sort of thing yeah right? and one of her, one of her many buttons uh says we're not in kansas anymore and he uh peter reads that out loud and she chuckles and nods and not realizing that it's a button on her own uniform because she just picked them out of a basket 
randomly. Mm-hmm. She doesn't even know what her buttons say. Uh, and she explains to him the concept of pieces of flair. <laughs> the, the buttons are supposed to be, uh, you know, little things to liven up the atmosphere or express your personality. Yeah, and I, I think the, the restaurant's requirement is you have to wear 15 pieces yeah, of flair. That's, that's <laughs> the bare minimum. Yep. <laughs> so, but she says she, she really doesn't like to talk about her flair. <laughs> Peter explains that his job is, uh, he's working on the 2000 switch, uh, which, uh, I, I more commonly knew it as the Y2K problem, but it's the same yeah, and problem. I think for younger listeners, it would be hard to communicate as we approach the year 2000, what a big deal the Y2K thing was. And right. it's really Really interesting historically, right? Because historically, when there's a millennium, we tend to come up with a catastrophic thing that's going to occur, right? The, mm-hmm. the world is going to end when we hit the year 1000 or, you know, whatever. So for for the year 2000, we literally did it again as a modern society. We're like, oh, the world's going to end because all the computers have, you know, can't do the date once it switches from two digits to four digits. And I mean, it was huge. There were just so many TV shows and news stories and everything about it. And then nothing happened. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And nobody today probably even remembers this. Yeah. Yeah. Although my opinion on it, which uh, I think there's at least some basis for believing it, is that the reason it never became a huge problem is because People did prepare for it and, you know, businesses spent vast amounts of money to remediate the problem uh, before it, before the uh, data actually changed. So, I mean, if, if people had just said, eh, don't, don't worry about it, uh, then I think it would have been a real big, genuine problem. But well, because people worked on it, you know, mm-hmm. they mostly prevented it. I think I half agree and half don't. I, I agree that absolutely there would have been maybe some things, maybe some serious things that went wrong if people hadn't been trying to change their systems. On the other hand, it was supposed to be so pervasive because it would be through everything and every, you know, thing that was a computer and every clock radio, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And yet basically nothing went wrong. I mean, so, you know. It was also, I mean, it was both, I think some things could have gone wrong, but I think it was also overstated, right? Because like everything was supposed to, I mean, literally they thought planes were going to fall out of the sky. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how much actual catastrophic stuff would have happened, but at the very least there would have been some, some chaos. If you remember, one of the things the airlines did to assure their customers is that they guaranteed that all the executives at the airline would be on an airplane <laughs> at the time. That doesn't ring a bell, huh? Yeah. So anyway, that's a long digression into the Y2K thing, but yeah. uh, look it up, kids. You can you can Google it or Wikipedia it. <laughs> yeah. So that's Peter's job. He's trying to prevent this disaster, which uh, apparently he did his part to do it. He says he thinks he's just going to stop going to work. He doesn't want to go anymore. You know, that's, uh, again, the the hypnosis at work. Mm -hmm. And he says he wants to take her to dinner, then take her back to his apartment and watch Kung Fu. And from the, (laughs) she gets this rapturous look on her face and she says, I love Kung Fu. You know, this is the old, what, 60s or 70s uh, TV show. So it's like a Western 
Yeah, David where, Kerning. Yeah, he he studies he studies with a Chinese master. Yeah. That was huge to me when I was a kid because yeah, he's this sort of bald you know guy, and, and I mean, there's so many things about it, but I would I think it's worth talking about sometime or doing a season or something. Like yeah. part of the weird thing about that that series is that was actually Bruce Lee's idea. Oh, no he came up with the concept of that series and he pitched it, and he of course would have been the martial arts guy in it. Oh, but no they're like, ah, oh, yeah, we can't have a Chinese guy. Is he Chinese or Japanese? He's probably Chinese, right? I believe so. Yeah, we can't have someone of your ethnicity <laughs> as the main character in a series. So mm-hmm. we're going to cast a white guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, make him up to look oriental. Yeah. So all sorts of problematic. However, it was really a big deal to me. And I'd love to check it out and see how good or bad it, it is in retrospect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know, uh, uh, I don't know if it's a commonly used phrase anymore, but at least one person uh, I used to work with uh, every now and then, he would say, snatch the pebble from my hand, grasshopper. <laughs> well, the other big deal to me was when in the, uh, so every, uh, for every episode, they have this relatively long intro where you get to see, you know, how he was trained. And one of the last things he does is he has to, um, he gives himself a tattoo on his arms by putting his arms around this boiling pot of water that has the tattoo things on the sides Uh, (laughs) and he has to pick it up and move it. And so that, uh, that was very cool. You know, (laughs) I wonder if that's where they got the idea for, uh, toast and, uh, Indiana Jones, you know, where he picks up the medallion from the Well of Souls and mm. it's like been sitting in the fire, so it burns into his hand, so he has the bap to, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, similar type of thing. So she loves Kung Fu, so it's a date. Back at Inatech, uh, Lumberg walks over, and this is, this is from that cartoon we were talking about, the mm-hmm. little two-minute cartoon. Yeah. Lumberg takes Milton's precious stapler. The red swing line. He, apparently, well, he's been looking for it. One of the things you realize as the film goes on is that Lumberg understands exactly what pushes Milton's buttons. Mm, yeah. And his entire purpose, because with him constantly telling him to move his desk or taking his stapler, is he knows those things are driving Milton insane. And he's doing it just for that purpose, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's that. That could be. You know, I never quite thought of it that way, but it, it's entirely a plausible. Yeah, they don't need him to it. move. He's like, oh, I need you to move all the way over there, and now I need you to move the basement. He knows the moving is driving him crazy. He doesn't need him to move, <laughs> and he doesn't need his stapler. These are, you know, yeah, yeah. I, I can, I, I can buy that. Yep. <laughs> Although I, Lumberg just seems so oblivious in general uh, that that may be giving him more credit for intelligence even if it is malicious intelligence to well to defend to back myself up there's actually a point it's in the background but there's a point where you're seeing milton and lumberg is a little bit in the distance with the two consultants the two bobs Mm, right and you hear him saying something about the stapler and about this and that so he's explaining to them what things will drive milton crazy oh okay yeah i I remember it ends with them all sharing a laugh yeah, and then he comes and takes the stapler. So, you know, that's, yeah, yeah. That I'll say he knows exactly what he's doing in this case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right. There you have it. 
So Peter comes into the office, uh, not to do any work, but he uh, he explains to Michael that he's come in to get his address book because he's got a number he doesn't want to lose. And Michael asks him why he didn't come in on Saturday. And Peter explains that he did absolutely nothing, and it was everything that I thought it could be. <laughs> and his timing is very good because he has been scheduled for a meeting with the Bobs. There's Bob Slidell, and then there's a, another Bob who was brought in to work with him. And they're, they've sort of commandeered a conference room where, you know, earlier we mentioned they interviewed Tom and Michael. And of course, everybody else is nervous about meeting them because they know that they might get fired. But he's like, ah, screw this. And he just walks in, right? <laughs> right, right. He's yeah. he's still high on hypnosis. And he, he goes into this meeting just just radiating relaxation and confidence. Mm-hmm. You know, instead of sitting down right away, he turns to the table off to the side of the room and gets a pitcher and a glass of water and brings it over to the to the conference table with him and yeah, he just he's just totally laid back. There's uh, no no apprehension at all, uh, which no doubt impresses the Bobs after all the other people they've seen who are terrified. And he's very frank about how little work he does. And I'm not going to talk too much about it because it's, you know, again, there's a lot of humor in here. He reveals in the process some disturbing facts about how the company is run or, or misrun. The fact that he has eight bosses, the, the insane overattention to detail with the TPS report cover sheets uh, and so on. <laughs> so they're very interested to, to hear this. When he finally gets out of this interview, he's just very cool, like, uh, good luck with the layoffs, <laughs> that sort of thing. And also, you can tell, unlike the other people I talked to, they just really like him. You know, they really sort of right. fall for him in this, you know. Yeah. Yeah, they were really impressed. And we'll we'll find out more about that later, too. So over at Chachki's, Joanna is at work in her waitress uniform. And Joanna's boss chides her. And I'm, I, it's been a while since I heard this, so I might be misremembering, but I think the boss is Mike Judge, the it is mind behind all of this. And he's very, um, very entertaining. I think in a, a very brief role, he's also very young. It's like, holy cow. Oh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, he's good. He, he, yeah. he, he's really good at this kind of role. He's this, uh, he's, he's this playing this real mild mannered restaurant manager. Who's very passive aggressive. He wants her to wear. The bottom line is he wants her to wear more pieces of flair than the bare minimum of 15 that she's wearing. Cause like, there's another guy who's a very abrasive waiter who, uh, he wears 37 pieces of flair, <laughs> uh, just voluntarily. Right. Joanna wears the 15 that she's required, the bare minimum. So he, he chides her for that. And she, uh, she says, uh, you know, and, and she keeps calling, you know, so I should wear more than. And, and he doesn't want to say you should wear more, you know, he's being passive aggressive. He says, well, you know, you should, don't you want to express yourself? And (laughs) and he won't just come out and say, yeah, put a few more on there. (laughs) But at this point, uh, it ends more or less pleasantly. Uh, you know, she says she'll try to do harder or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. Back at Anatech, the Bobs are now in a meeting with Lumber about uh, the staff cuts they're going to be working on. Uh, they mentioned that Tom, the older guy, uh, the people person, 
<laughs> and uh, and Milton are both on the chopping block. And actually, Milton was laid off years ago, they discovered. <laughs> they never stopped his pay through some glitch in payroll. So uh, the Bobs fixed the glitch, and he won't be getting a check anymore. <laughs> and uh, they say that, you know, the problem will just resolve itself. He'll stop getting a check, so it'll stop coming in. Um, this is probably not the way most companies would handle <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, but none uh, of these people has the guts to actually tell him that he's been led <laughs> after. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the Bobs are get to talking about Peter. And Peter, they say, is a real straight shooter. They think he's bound for upper management. <laughs> and Lumberg, uh, uh, you know, he he's diplomatic about it. You know, he he's, uh, well, I'm going to have to disagree with you. <laughs> that sort of thing. The Bobs try to explain their their position, and uh, then they go on to ask Lumberg, uh, just how much time would you say you spend dealing with TPS reports? <laughs> oh, so, and there's a detail here I did not notice until the second time I watched it, which is, you know, each employee they've been talking about, whether they're going to fire them or not, they have a little form and they have their name, you know, written, handwritten out on it and all this. Mm -hmm. um, when, so when Lumberg doesn't like Peter, and they start to ask him how much time he spends with the TPS reports, they pull out a sheet which has Lumberg's name on it the same way as everyone else's. Mm. So this is a power move. They're now putting the boss on, like, you know, we're evaluating whether to fire you or not. Right, and that's that's the impression that I, I got from, but I, I didn't notice that it was a sheet with his name on it. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, I didn't uh, either. Buttresses that reading of it. So we get a little montage, uh, not not really a hardcore montage with music playing and all that. Well, there there is some kind of music, but I mean it's it's <laughs> low key montage. And uh, Peter parks in Lumberg's space where he, you know, the vice president slot. So Lumberg parks his Porsche in the handicapped spot, and he gets towed, and the bumper comes off when the truck tries to tow it. <laughs> We see Peter and Joanna watching Kung Fu together at his apartment. Peter and Joanna and Lawrence, uh, they go fishing all together in one boat. It's real nice. <laughs> and then uh, we see Peter's back at work, and now he, he's brought his fish into work, and he's cleaning the fish in his cube. <laughs> and then he's actually, I mean, he actually cleans the fish there. You see him, you know, pull the jaw right. and entrails, and he... Well, the key part is he takes the entrails and puts them onto the TPS reports. Yeah, right? he just plops them on a pile of uh, TPS sheets on the table next to him there. And, oh, he dismantles the one wall of his cubicle. He just knocks, you know, takes the screws out and knocks it over so that uh, uh, he can get a view out the window, which actually makes sense. Uh, that's probably something I'd try to get away with if I <laughs> was in a situation to merit that. And Lumberg comes to talk with Peter. He's He's... Thumberg is dis displeased, obviously, although he's very being very low-key about it because he doesn't like to show any kind of lack of control. You know, he always tries to be cool and composed. Peter is sitting there playing Tetris on his computer, and uh, he's, he's pleasant to Lumberg, but he's also kind of insolent to him. He says he's going to have to cut Lumberg short because he's got a meeting with the Bobs in a few minutes which Lumberg didn't know anything about. 
So while, while Peter goes to meet with the Bobs, Lumberg moves on to Milton and Milton asks him about his paycheck that he hasn't received. And, uh, he says, you're going to have to talk to payroll about that. Even though Lumberg knows <laughs> exactly what's going on with his paycheck. Mm-hmm. And this is where Lumberg tells Milton to move to the basement, which, uh, I believe that was also in that cartoon that started the whole thing rolling. And that's the end of the first half of the movie. So Peter joins the Bobs in the conference room of death, and they are uh, very chummy with him, so much so that they start going through the list of people that they're going to lay off. There's no reason to tell him this, right? Yeah, and in fact, it's probably illegal, I would think. (laughs) It reminds me, it's a weird experience I had, so... You know, I worked at Next and Apple bought Next and Steve came back at that point and everything. And after Steve took over, you know, just they needed to do massive layoffs because the company was about to go out of business. As the incoming people, we had this weird situation that actually most people don't know about historically, which is the people at Next that Apple had bought could not be laid off unless they cashed out all of our stock. Hmm. So that was basically a poison pill to keep us from losing our jobs. Uh Uh-huh. Well, since when Steve, you know, became the CEO again, he needed to do large layoffs. We were in this very weird circumstance where we were being asked who should be laid off. Now, we had just joined this company mm-hmm. weeks, weeks before, and we were being asked who should be laid off. And I had this weird experience of sitting in a meeting with about 20 people and looking around and realizing, 18 of these people are about to be laid off and I can't say anything and I have to sit here in this meeting and I have to act like everything's going to go on normal when I know what's going to happen. It was very bizarre. Yeah, yeah. I've been in that position once or twice where I I found out somebody was going to be let go before it happened and it's very, uh, very uncomfortable. Yeah. Yep. So one of the things they tell him is that Samir and Michael are going to be laid off. They don't know that they're friends of his. And they're going to be replaced by entry-level graduates and, you know, foreign contractors. But at the same time, they're going to promote Peter to management. He's going to have at least four people under him. (laughs) So he's like, wait, you know, you're going to lay off Samir and Michael, and you're now going to pay me more. And they actually work harder than he does, you know, et cetera. (laughs) Yeah, and he, uh, it, it, I think at this point, the hypnosis is starting to wear off or, you know, mm. hardly where it has worn off, but, but he's still got some of it left, I think. Right. Meanwhile, Michael is having a violent interaction with the printer. We saw Samir doing this earlier. You know, he's trying to get this piece of paper out and he's kind of having this funny dialogue with the printer. <laughs> and Peter comes by and asks if he'll join him tonight so he can tell him about something, you know. He's hinting that he's going to lose his job. But as we'll see, when they get together, it's Michael who thinks Peter is in trouble. It's like, oh, you've been, you know, you've been screwing around. You're going to get fired. I'm fine. It is the logical conclusion. (laughs) Yeah, if there was any logic to all this. Yeah. (laughs) So Peter then asks about Michael's virus scheme that he's always talking about. And Michael explains that it's about shaving off the fractional carryover when moving money between accounts. And Peter... Says this sounds familiar, and this is one. You know, I usually complain about it. Here, I think it's funny, but I usually complain about it. Mm-hmm. One of those things, you know, when the director is telling you, "Oh, I know you're going to think of this," so oh, I'm yeah, put in this dialogue. Your lampshade. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so Michael says, "Yeah, they did it in Superman 3. <laughs> which and that I, I 
as I remember it, I think the first time I saw this, this that was exactly the thought that I had before they <laughs> brought it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, nobody watching it now would probably think that because probably not too many yeah, people have watched yeah. Superman 3. Right. But Michael says he hasn't bothered to do this because it's not worth the risk because he has a good job. <laughs> and then, you know, this is like that old joke, right? Like, who here is um, not an orphan? <laughs> and, you know, then they say, wait, not so fast. <laughs> so Peter's like, well, what if you didn't have a good job? <laughs> and so he takes him to a bar and they commiserate about the fact that he's about to get fired. And Michael agrees to do the visor's trick, but he can't do it himself. They need Samir to help out. Yeah, Samir has access to the credit union software or something like that. Yeah, so they talk to Samir, and he's not interested. <laughs> this is so bizarre, right? Because he's like, well, you know, we're going to then get arrested and be in jail. And then they go on this whole thing where he's like, well, what is conjugal visits? And would we have conjugal visits? And basically it comes down to, he's like, does... Okay, so do conjugal visits mean that I would be able to have sex with a woman? And Peter says yes. And he's like, okay, I'm in. (laughs) It's okay if you go to prison as long as you can have conjugal visits. It it seems that he's assuming that the women are provided by the the prison. (laughs) So now we're back in the office and Peter is suddenly wearing a respectable suit. Meanwhile, Michael and Samir collaborate in putting together the virus, and there's a little funny kind of Mission Impossible-style sequence where they're (laughs) passing off the disc to each other and all that. And they hand it off to Peter, who inserts it into the system. And then this really annoying guy stops by and tells him what's just happened to Tom. He was the kind of not-actually-doing-anything guy (laughs) from earlier. (laughs) Yeah. And there's a whole sequence in here where on getting laid off, he decided to kill himself. So he was in his garage running his car, you know, with the garage door closed. He tried to get the carbon dioxide poisoning. Yep. But then his wife shows up early and he decides he actually wants to live. So he pulls his car out of the garage. But of course, he immediately gets hit by an oncoming car. And he broke a whole bunch of the bones in his body. But he's getting a seven-figure settlement. And he's holding a celebratory party this weekend. So this would be like, you know, a day after, you know, he got uh, hit. Yeah. So th- this... uh. This is actually, you know, they had been discussing that question of uh, what would you do if you had a million dollars and he's getting a seven figure settlement. So it's exactly what he knows what he'd do, as we will see. (laughs) (laughs) And then we get the most uh, famous rage filled scene of the film. (laughs) (laughs) Peter steals the printer from the office and he, Michael and Samir, take turns in a field trashing it. And this is about the length of the they live fight. I mean, it goes on and on. I'm not sure it's that long, but it does. It does. Uh, we, we do get to see some uh, some graphic printer gore. Yeah. And I will just, you know, behind the scenes thing I'll mention when we were debating whether to do this film or Idiocracy from Mike Judge for this series. You said, "Well, there's this scene where they literally rage against the machine." <laughs> so. Back in Peter's apartment, Joanna appears, and she's wearing, it looks like nothing but a t-shirt, and I'm just going to say, ooh boy, okay. (laughs) She wants to know what Peter and his friends were celebrating last night. He says he can't talk about it. 
you know, but then he does. They're in the car, and he explains the whole scheme to her. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think when he had talked to Michael and Samir, they had said, we can't tell anybody about this. Right, well, he told them, right? Nobody yeah. can know, right? Yeah, not a loved one. Not a, yeah, so he immediately broke it. Yeah. And she doesn't take it well. She acts like a normal person because he's explaining, you know, what they're going to do, shaving off these pennies and how they're going to steal all his money. And she's like, well, that's like stealing, right? And he's like, no, 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 it's not stealing. <laughs> and he, uh, he makes... A joke about he, he he makes a very bad analogy about pieces of flair, which I won't uh, I, I won't describe because uh, it's I it's one of my favorite lines in the movie, and it's also surprisingly uh, certainly by today's standards one of the most tasteless <laughs> jokes in the movie. But uh, uh, it's fun. He also uh, analogizes it to taking a penny from the penny jar, right? So. You know, it's not a problem to take a penny, and we're just taking a fraction of a penny a couple million times. Right? <laughs> yeah. So they have been driving to Tom's celebrity barbecue after his accident. Celebratory. <laughs> <laughs> and he's in a wheelchair, completely covered in medical equipment, you know, pins on his neck, that sort of thing. But and it's so bizarre because he's beaming and extremely happy. <laughs> you know, he won the lottery, he got hit, and it doesn't matter that his body has sort of been destroyed. He gives Peter a lecture about hating his job. He says, Just remember, if you hang in there long enough, good things can happen. I mean, look at me, <laughs> and of course, he's like completely, oh, yeah, you know, he's uh, got broken <laughs> over all of his limbs and. Now, this reminds me of Tom Petty's character in King of the Hill. You know, he, he was this character. I don't remember the character's name, but he made his fortune by slipping on pee-pee at the mall, in the in the bathroom at the mall, and then he sued the mall. And, <laughs> and now he doesn't work anymore because of that settlement. <laughs> and then Peter is informed by the really gross guy that we met earlier at the party that if he's being with Joanna, he should wear a condom because she gets around like a record. <laughs> In particular, he mentions she slept with Lumbert. And this, of course, freaks Peter out because anyone who would sleep with his boss, you know, <laughs> he's not someone he can be with. Yeah, yeah. He's uh, he, he's willing to forgive a lot of things, but, but Lumberg, no. <laughs> so in the car on the way back from the party, Peter's very unhappy, and he confronts her about Lumberg. She gets pissed off that he's trying to tell her who, you know, be mad at her for who she slept with in the past. And she has him stop the car, and she gets out and tells him it's over. And then uh, you mentioned this earlier. <laughs> so Peter goes home and goes to sleep, and he has dreams that include Lumberg having sex with Joanna. So we're seeing him holding her leg up, right, while he's talking to Peter in his smarmy manner. It's a very... Uh, funny and bizarre scene. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking maybe his his joke that he had about the pieces of flair, the uh, you know, the, the one about the the Nazis had pieces of flair. Mm. They made the Jews. Mm. I'm wondering if that happens in the breakup scene rather than in the discussing the penny theft i can't remember now uh it probably does but i don't recall yet. So, yeah well you can fix that in post i guess <laughs> take it out if you need to that's fine so next up joanna's boss mike judge confronts her again about only wearing 15 pieces of flair <laughs> so he said you know do you want to express yourself so she chooses to express herself by flipping him off <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, she loses her job, but she, you know, kind of the implication here, I think, is that she's picked up a little bit of attitude from Peter. Yeah. And meanwhile, Peter goes to an ATM and checks the account that the money was being funneled into. And they just started this, but it already has 300K in it. <laughs> and that's a problem because they were, they intended this to be a very small, slow thing so that nobody would notice. But yeah. if in the matter of days that 300K have gone missing, someone's going to notice. Right. So now we have the three of them in the car freaking out because they realize what's going to happen. And Michael admits that he often screws up programming details like the decimal point. Yeah. <laughs> I always <laughs> screw up some small detail. <laughs> and at the office, it's Lomberg's birthday. And the employees are singing happy birthday like they're zombies. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's very listless. Happy birthday. <laughs> and... There's this cake, which Lumberg says is very good, and Milton, Milton really wants a piece of cake, in part because the last time they had cake, he didn't get any. Yeah. But he's told not to be greedy, and that when he's handed cake, he needs to pass it on. So he keeps passing on the cake while he's complaining and expressing more concern that he won't get cake. And, of course, he discovers that all the cake is gone and he's been screwed. And to make matters worse, I notice this the second time, the woman next to him who gets cake, so it's the rule of pass it on, it should have been passed to him. But she just starts eating the cake instead of passing it to him. So he's the only person who didn't get cake, right? Under his breath, and we haven't really talked about this, but it's actually really important. Over and over again throughout the movie, he said he's going to set the building on fire. Mm -hmm. Which is also in that cartoon yeah, that started. Yeah, yeah. And so at this point, under his breath, he says that... He's going to set the building on fire. Now, we've heard it before, you know, whatever. It seems like, uh, you know, hyperbole. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the conspirators in, you know, shaving off the pennies decide they should launder the money, but they don't really know what it means. So they're like <laughs> looking it up uh, in the dictionary. And then Lombard, still eating his cake, comes down to this dark, unlighted basement. And Milton is sitting at his desk and he tells Milton he should start clearing out the rats in the basement. <laughs> And as he's doing this, Dom, I think it is, comes up and lets mm -hmm. him know that a whole bunch of money is missing Yeah, from the company. Yeah, it's an emergency. They need him upstairs right away. Yeah, so he's run. he runs out and Milton is left in the dark. And Milton says something that turns out to be very significant. He says, <laughs> okay, that's the last straw. <laughs> okay, that's the last straw. <laughs> I can't do the voice. So, so as the conspirators are trying to figure out money laundering by looking it up in the dictionary, Peter happens to find out that Joanna actually slept with a different Lomberg, not his boss. Yeah, and no, it was Ron Lomberg, <laughs> not <Yeah>. Bill Lomberg. <laughs> and meanwhile, they decide, you know, in order to do this money laundering, they need to hook up with someone shady. And then a guy shows up at the door and he's trying to sell them magazine subscriptions. And he says he was a former crack addict and he has this, all this story. And they're like, wait, you were a crack addict? Yeah. <laughs> you know, shady people. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny how he delivers his feel because yeah. it's very, very robotic. Like I am a former crack addict and, you know, it's just, yeah. Uh, and then it, well, go on. I, I don't want to. Interrupt. Well, yeah, it turns out that. In reality, he's a software engineer who lost his job, and he's just doing this for the extra money. And actually, he's been able to make more money at this than software engineering. Now, I'm going to say BS on that, but okay, whatever. 
And he can't really hook them up with anyone because he wasn't really a crack addict. And now these three friends start kind of falling apart because Samir tells Peter that he's a bad person who led them into this whole thing. Yeah, and uh, that appears uh, in a dream that he has. Um, yeah, the, yeah, the bad person thing comes up again, yeah. The judge sentences them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. So Peter uh, waits outside Joanna's new job, which is Flingers, one of the places he mentioned he might go to lunch at. That uh, was, when yeah, was that was where him. they had their first date. Yeah, that is it, yeah. And she actually, oh, we didn't mention it then, but she liked Flingers. They had better costumes and, and right. better uh, uh, tables and stuff than than a regular job. Yeah. So he tells her he's going to return the money and leave a confession, and he apologizes for being an asshole to her. And he pitches her on returning to him as he can have an, a happy life with her. And she's on board. I mean, she really doesn't need to hear much. She just needs to know that he's improving. Yeah. That is a pretty sincere apology, his apologies goal. Yeah. So at night at the office, Peter slides his envelope with his confession under his boss's door. And then, of course, uh, he immediately tries to get it back, but he can't get it. Yeah. He takes a couple steps away and then just whirls around and dives for the bottom of the door. But but it's too far in there. (laughs) And the next day, Milton is trying to get his paycheck from payroll. They tell him to talk to Lumba. And he's like, look, he told me to talk to you, you know, et cetera. You know, Lumberg isn't in his office right now, so the secretary uh, blows Milton off. But as soon as she gets up and goes somewhere, presumably she's going to warn Lumberg that Milton's looking for him. But hmm. as soon as she walks away, Milton goes in to Lumberg's hmm. office, and the door's open, which makes me think it was probably open the right. previous night when Peter, you know, tried to reach under the door. So all he had to do was yeah. try the knob and he could have gotten that thing back. Things might have. Yeah, been you're right. Uh, yeah. Little joke that was <laughs> in there. So Peter is in his apartment. He's packing up, you know, kind of ready to, for the fact that he's going to have to go to jail. And then he's driving to work. But as he's driving to work, he hears sirens. And it turns out, surprise, and... We should have told our listeners earlier about the whole fire thing from Milton. The place <laughs> is on fire. <laughs> All the evidence of their wrongdoings are burned up. Milton inconspicuously walks away. <laughs> yeah. Now, realistically, the way computers work, I think there would have been some evidence. But uh, yeah, well, <laughs> this is 1988 or something, so this yeah. you know they didn't know about this stuff. <laughs> Was it 98 or 90 something? Yeah. Because yeah. he was working on the Y2K problem. Yeah, that's right. It was 98. Yes, you're right. It was 1998, so they didn't know about all this then. And then we have this kind of weird switch where sometime later, Peter and his quasi-roommate Lawrence are now hard-hatted workers cleaning up the fire damage. Mm-hmm. And Samir and Michael drive up. They've gotten jobs at another tech company. But Peter is happy working in construction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, uh, he says uh, something like, uh, uh, yeah, this isn't so bad working outside and all that. And Lawrence says, fucking A, man. <laughs> Peter says, <laughs> fucking A. <laughs> <laughs> then we're in the Bahamas and Milton is on the beach, you know, sitting there. But of course, being Milton, he's complaining that he got the wrong drink and he wasn't supposed to have salt on the rim and he's going on and on and the waiter ignores him. <laughs> and then he's like, 
I could shut this whole resort down. I can put strychnine in the guacamole. <laughs> <laughs> and he also mentions that he could take his traveler's checks to another resort, which is how the, how we know that he retrieved that envelope that Peter slid under the door. Because that was how he was going to pay back the three 300 grand was with those traveler's uh, okay. checks. Okay, I missed that part. Ah. Good, good point. And it's the end of the movie. <laughs> Now, here I mentioned in the beginning that I had a theory about Milton and all this, which is I feel like this movie is kind of like um, a magic trick, which is we have these younger, good-looking guys, you know, Peter and Samir and Michael, Mm -hmm. and we're following them the whole time. And Milton is this side character who's funny and making these little comments, right? Right. I would argue the reality is this is Milton's film, right? This is mm-hmm. his falling down. <laughs> like, but with his desk being moved and, you know, not getting the cake and everything, mm-hmm. he's, all these things are happening to him. And from the very beginning of the movie, he's like, I'm going to burn this place down. <laughs> he <laughs> yeah. tells what's going to happen from the beginning. And then he does it. Yeah. And so I feel like the other storyline is irrelevant, right? Especially since the fire wiped it out, nothing they did mattered. Milton was the only character in the story who mattered, and it was really his story. So that is my theory. <laughs> no, that, that that's very reasonable. I, I mean, he does get the last uh, the last scene. So, and it <laughs> yeah. is based on the cartoon about him. So, uh, so right. sure, there's. Uh, and that also means at the end when he's like, I could put strychnine in the guacamole. It's like, oh, that's not a joke. I mean, he's yeah. willing to do this sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, it's not as easy to blow that off as it might be with other people. <laughs> so, you know, we, I don't know. Well, we, you know, we talk about plot. We talk about actors. I don't know what to talk about here. I mean, I, I would say I'm not going to call it a perfect film, but I, I would call it close in that. There's really very little I can think of to um, criticize or, you know, that didn't go well. Um, obviously, it's a huge cult classic. It's had cultural impact. There are multiple uh, phrases from here that have become part of the culture. You know, what is it exactly that you do here, et cetera? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the plot is, uh, it's it, it's a it's a good plot. And, it you know, there's a lot of things where they set it up and then they pay it off later, you know, and or something that uh, seems a throwaway joke turns out to be much more relevant than it seemed at the time. Uh, so, I mean, the the the, the plot isn't isn't bad. I, I like it, and the jokes. I, I love the jokes. I mean, it's just one after the other. So, I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's um. It's a different style than, say, Blazing Saddles or Airplane, or you know, it's. But but still, it is pretty relentless with the with the comedy, which which I mm-hmm. like. I didn't look up how successful it was out of the gate, but obviously, huge cult classic, very enduring, yeah. and I, have, I don't I think know. because it connects with people, you know. Yep. Yeah, I, I don't know for certain. I have the impression that this is one that only kind of blossomed after it came to home video, but I, uh, I could be wrong about that. All right. Well, let me look up Wikipedia here and see, I should, we should know these things ahead of time, but <laughs> yeah, it was not a success yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the theater. So yeah, yet another one of these films. 
Kind of like John Carpenter's films have become huge after the fact. Yeah, but better late than never, I guess. Yeah, unless you're, uh, you know, need to pay your mortgage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's that. <laughs> Although I think Mike Judge is doing fine, so. Yeah, yeah. you know what we didn't mention, and, and I could be wrong about this, but I think he's also behind Silicon Valley, isn't he? He is, yeah, and I forgot to mention that too. So that's just yet another, and I watched a, about a season of that mm-hmm. a little over, and that was really well done. Um, it did have this weird situation where one of the really interesting characters in it, uh, the actor died. Yeah, um, that was that was a pity because uh, he was yeah. really one of the more enjoyable characters in the first season. He was, and one of the reasons I stopped watching it was it was kind of awkward how they tried to replace him and, and all that. And I'm sure it got better after that. But nonetheless, yeah, just Mike Judge, is, he's just an amazing number of things uh, and, that have been successful and culturally impactful and and all that. And I don't even know what, I mean, you know, we have these different actors. I mean, I don't think anybody did a bad job. Everybody was really good. Mm-hmm. You know, amazing script, great jokes. You know, as I said, really resonates with people dealing with their day-to-day BS in their jobs. It has. I I think the characters are well sketched out enough, especially like uh, like Lumberg mm. and, and, and Milton, and uh, you know, there, there's a handful of them who come to mind when I see things just in daily life. You know, something will remind me of of one of these characters from Office Space, which is, uh, you know, not not every movie character does that. <laughs> um, so that's a, uh, you know, this uh, it it's got it's got uh, I I don't know this it's a lingering quality of some sort. I guess <laughs> uh, it'll come to your mind uh, at various times when you're not expecting it. <laughs> right. So it's fair to say we consider it worth watching. Yeah. Uh, very much so. Check it out. So last remaining question, you know, is this a Rage Against the Machine film? Well, I, yes. Uh, as we mentioned, it's literally a Rage Against the <laughs> Yeah, Rage Against but, the Printer um, for sure. Beyond that, there is, um, you know, there are a lot of little discussions about, well, aside from the we get the we get the show don't tell examples of dealing with people like Lumberg and the the policies of the TPS reports and the that aside from the actual examples that we see we actually have some moments where they just have conversations about the nature of what they're doing you know the the work mm-hmm. that uh, is isn't really doing anything all that worthwhile and uh, isn't fulfilling and uh and then, of course, Milton has his own form of rage hmm. that, uh, as you uh, suggest, may be really the whole core of the movie. So, yeah, seems legit to me. <laughs> <laughs> I think it is, too. And, and again, I think it is because of Milton that Milton has been put on, put upon by the man, <laughs> by the machine. <laughs> they keep moving his desk. They keep taking his stapler. And those are lower stakes than most of our <laughs> Rage Against the Machine. But mm-hmm. for him, it's serious and serious enough that he burns the whole place down. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, join us next week for our next Doctor Who season. Very we'll good. talk to you then.
senor. May I speak to you, please? I asked for Mai Tai, and they brought me a pina colada. And I said, no salt. No salt for the margarita, but it had salt on it. There's big grains of salt on Los again. I won't be leaving a tip, because I could, I could shut this whole resort down. Sir, I could take my traveler's check to a competing resort. I could write a letter to your code of tourism, and I could have this place condemned. I could put, I could put strychnine in the guacamole. There was salt on the glass, big grains of salt. 